Hello, 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 lovely people, and welcome to Handcut Radio as we start, very sadly, to wrap up season three. Lucky for you, my penultimate guest this season is a marvellous fellow, none other than American journalist and author David Coggins. Mr. Coggins and I have brushed shoulders at various points over the years, and I have long admired his work, but we've never really had the chance to sit down and enjoy a proper conversation. So, thanks to this funny little podcast, I grabbed my chance for a proper sit-down at Pitiomo in January, and delightful it was too. We talk about writing and the process of finding one's voice as a journalist, explore David's own philosophy on menswear, and I indulge in a little rant about a pet marketing peeve of mine, so stay tuned for that. As always, we very much hope that you enjoy this week's conversation, so let's get stuck in. Well, uh, Mr. Coggins, thank you very much for taking some time out. Um, you join us in our in our pokey uh, Pitiomo Airbnb. It's great. I like to start a podcast on the fourth floor. <laughs> uh, yeah, bless you. Thank you. Of course. Um, but thanks for taking some time. I know you are busy, and you are only here for a few days, and That's, there's lots to see and do. It's my pleasure talking with people. Is one of the reasons you come here, I suppose. Indeed. Mm. So, without further ado, where shall we begin? I'd quite like to start with a little bit of context for you. Although sure. I'm sure you do this a lot. Given my own profession, I just love to know how people come to be writers and journalists. How does one do that? What was your story? Um, well, slowly, I think, is the, <laughs> is the, is the quick answer. I, I, I always studied literature, and I always wrote and cared about writing. And I've told a story about how when I did schoolwork, I would turn it in to my father first, who would be sitting at the end of the couch by the fire reading the New York Times, and he would edit my work pretty rigorously. He didn't take into account my ten- <laughs> Your tender schoolboy <laughs> feelings. And I would have to go upstairs and I would you know, edit it and return it to him and I could stay up past my bedtime on those nights, and, which I oddly didn't enjoy because it was a somewhat tense process mm. and uh, until he approved of it. Of course, he denies this now, but it was very much a fi- formative part. So that, that was the early years and I grew up in a house where books were very important. Of course. And so I think you you develop just a natural way of writing and a love of it. And then if you fast forward a little bit, I studied literature in college, and um, I, I began writing about art. And that was a really, good, a really good process to go through. I worked with very serious editors, and that's what I did. I was an art journalist. Straight in. And uh, I, I liked it very much until I didn't. <laughs> and what I didn't like about it at a certain point was that I just wanted to write about the things I cared about, the artists I like, and advocate for them. And they were looking for a more even-handed approach. And I, much to my surprise, did not like writing negative reviews. In your mind, you think, oh, I, I'm going to tell the world how it is. I'm going to cut this person down to size. But that's not really what the job was. There, there are very few art editors or art critics who can be so full-throated in their criticism. Mostly what I was doing was summarizing shows and kind of giving people a sense of them. So it was a different challenge. What's your take on the kind of critical journalism generally? Because it's not something I've figured out my own stance on. That, that's a good question, and it's a complicated issue. And I think what I learned, or what at least made sense for me, was trying to understand what the artist was trying to do, and did they succeed on their terms. Not merely did they succeed in making something that I liked. And, and making that distinction was a big one for me, I think, there's something humbling about reviewing someone's work. You, you've got to you've be, got to imagine what they're trying to do and not mm. try to 
criticize everything in terms of your favorite works. Of course, that changes as you develop your own voice and if you kind of move up the, uh, the ladder and people come to look for you. Most of the reviews I was writing when I was younger, they're looking, people reading the art magazines, they're looking to understand the exhibition. They, they couldn't care that I wrote it, my name's at the bottom. Once your name's at the top, that's a little bit yeah, different. And then people come to you, and if it's your favorite film critic, like Anthony Lane in The New Yorker, you're reading it often just to get his take on something, and you can compare it to his other, his other criticisms in his history. So basically what happened is I made a big decision after having written a lot of interviews for art magazines, written cover stories, I took a pause and said, I want to write about the other things I care about. Men's tailoring, fly fishing, travel, drinking. And that was really hard. People wouldn't let me uh, write for them, even though I'd done all these other you things. You were an established writer. They, I said, can I write about wine? They said, well, do you have examples of your writing on wine? I said, no, but I've got all this other work. And they said, well, we're sorry. Come back to us with examples. And that was kind of disheartening. Um, I, I think it would be for anybody. And, and at what period in your career is I'm this I'm probably roughly? 30 or 28 or 30 right. in there. And uh, so I started writing um, for websites for little money or no money mm -hmm. <laughs> and building up my uh, collection of stories on, on all these things. And then I got lucky, I guess, <laughs> to write for a very sympathetic editor at, the, at Men's Vogue, RIP, uh, and this editor, a man named Owen Phillips, who had been the art editor at The New Yorker, and he, he just sent me out into New York to write about all sorts of things for the Men's Vogue website. But every day, almost, I would write about an auction or write about some, something that was happening, and that was really good. It, it made me loosen up a lot because my art writing was very kind of formal and tight, and this, he would just say, loosen up, let, let some air in, it's okay. And Was that like the sort of first sort of point in your career where you were having to sort of file digital copy almost yeah, every day? exactly. And that's a, good, that's a good habit too. I think now probably most people do that from the beginning. And mm. I think I was lucky enough to work with some very strong woman, women editors. They were all women editors at Art in America where I wrote, and they were really rigorous. And it was good to write with for people like that, I think. And then it was it's also good to write quickly and to, to try to file quickly. Mm. And, and then I had the good fortune of working with Glenn O'Brien, who was sort of a mentor to me, um, R.I.P. Glenn, a legend. And he, he really was the most urbane, kind of wonderful writer. He wrote about everything from art to men's style to advertising in a way that was both uh, urbane and profane and uh, a few other ains in there. I don't know. <laughs> he, he was wonderful, and he, he, he was a person who helped me um, just by seeing the way he wrote and spending time with him helped me get to a place where I was more kind of comfortable with my own voice. And, and I think that's what happens over time. Mm. I think if I was not to give people advice, but I feel like when you're young, you're, you're so worried about your own style, your own voice, whether you're an artist, a writer, or even your sartorial style. And I think it's going to come to you. You don't want to look too far for it or too fast for it. And I think that's something to keep in mind. Um, I, we are definitely going to come on to clothes, so please, please, <laughs> please rest assured, listeners, that's going to happen. But actually, I want to stick with writing for yes, a bit because I'm yes, loving let's this. Let's do it. Um, when did you feel like your voice had kind of arrived in front of you? Then, when did you have that moment? Well, it's funny. I I think somehow it when you're not looking for it anymore, and I don't know if that's a satisfying answer, but I think at some point you feel in control of what you're doing, and you don't have to try as hard. But that's it's not that it's easy, it's because you put the work in ahead of time. Mm. And I think when you 
Um, I remember hearing David Mamet's say one time that he knew he needed a three-syllable word. And I was like, how would he know that? How He said, you just know how many syllables the last word is supposed to be. And I was like, that's impossible. <laughs> I, would, I don't understand. But now I do know what he means. When the rhythm of something or, or just feeling more uh, that you know what you're trying to do, though it, usually you don't know until the very end. Mm. And then you're like, oh, yes, that's right. And so that probably happened to me, I don't know, five years ago, six years ago, where I felt that I knew what was at stake. Partly it's because you do these things enough. Someone says, write this type of story. It's 1,200 words. You kind of understand the arc of it and what you're trying to do. You try to get a few hopefully memorable lines in. <laughs> but you also try to, I mean, I think one thing we're always trying to balance is what's what does the publication want? What do the readers want? And then what do I want? Mm. And, uh, and different publications allow you to do different things. And sometimes it can be all you. Sometimes it's not about you as much. And sometimes it's only you. Mm. And I think if you're lucky, you, you get to do different things and see what makes sense. Awesome. Um, I mean, I love talking about this. So we can talk writing craft all day. I mean, it's a, and then, and then you try to write a book and then that's a whole other, uh, <laughs> that's a whole other kettle right. of fish. Well, see that, that is something I am sort of trying to limber up towards. Mm. So I've got a few ideas in my head, Yeah, but I, I think I've probably, you know, outside of a university thesis, the longest thing I've ever written for a magazine has probably been 2,500 words. Yeah. So it's going to be an interesting one. Well, um, I, I think somebody, I think people, if they found out you're a writer or something, they'll say, well, are you going to write a book or you should write a book? I think it's just because they run out of things to say. So <laughs> they say, maybe you should write a book. And I, and people had said that to me and I wasn't, I just wasn't ready. And I didn't know why, but I just didn't feel that I, the time was right or I had the confidence oddly enough. And, and so it did, then you get to a point in this case, now I do know how old I was because I, I was, thought I'd like to have a book by the time I was 40. So I started to work on it in my late thirties and the book came out right before my 41st birthday, but that's okay. It still counted <laughs> men in style when I was, uh, when I was 40 and it, and then, and then once that happens, you, I really like the process of working on a book, working with editors and designers and, and having it come together. Some people don't like that. They just want to write and be done with it. But I like the actual process of bringing a book together. I've worked on a variety of them in different ways. How, how did the idea for Men and Style kind of take shape in your mind? Well, I was, I was getting older and my friends were getting older. And I was, a lot of them were having children. And, and I, we were, I was just looking at them as fathers and thinking about our own fathers and thinking about how we didn't really see them clearly when we were younger. You see your dad as, or your parents for, for that matter, kind of through the selfish lens of how they provide for you or just your family dynamic. And you don't see them in an autonomous sense, um, their ambitions, how, how they were when they were younger, how they dressed for that matter. And so I, I thought I would go to uh, some interesting men, a number of whom are at pity, uh, and ask them, how did... First of all, how did you arrive at your sense of style? Because I think it kind of happens as you get into your later 30s that you've kind of worked through different style phases and kind of arrived at your sensibility. So I asked them, how did you arrive at that style? What lessons did you learn as a young man from your father? How did he dress? What bad phases did you have? And just all sorts of questions like that. And so I thought it would be interesting to get to, to know men, partly stylish men, enlightened men, partly through the mistakes they made. Mm. Because I think that's a very humanizing thing and a funny thing. And you know, what was your first cologne, or what was, what what, what did you wear to prom if, if you're an American? And and so and also I asked them for photos of their fathers as young men, and that was the best part of the book, I think, to see 
every, these men's dads in their in their military clothes and their uniforms if they were workers if they if they were dressed up on their wedding day and they could be dapper working class or and I was uh, that was really um really nice I think to see that and then that book also included my own essays and uh, that was a big deal for me to do, to do that to bring that together and and nice because it involved other people and people I'm interested in mm. and so I, I enjoyed that communal part of it I think it's it is a superb read oh, thank you it's thoroughly enjoyable um, and I, I think the phrase that you used earlier, talking to men about how they arrived at their sense of style, mm. is very telling. Mm. And something that comes up on the podcast from time to time is this idea of engaging with clothes in a meaningful way is such a journey. And it's very <laughs> right. easy to forget that right. it's a journey. Right. Um, and I think we, we have talked before, and then I said we, can, we can have another little um, anecdote for my wardrobe history. You know, I remember... A pivotal moment in my own development, I think I must have been 17. I'm from a very little pokey little town in Hertfordshire, north of London. And there was a, there was a Cafe Nero, and it was the social hub of the town. <laughs> and uh, I remember walking in there wearing a, a, a pink, yellow, red and black lumberjack check shirt, a black beanie, black skinny jeans tucked into black cowboy boots with skinny braces hanging off my shoulders. <laughs> And everyone in the shop turned around as I stood in the doorway and looked at me and went, what the hell is that guy wearing? Garçon, triple espresso. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Uh, I remember that moment at that point sort of thinking, okay, I'm I'm going into sick form. Maybe it's time to start wearing (laughs) a sports coat. (laughs) Well, I do think there's something, I think one thing I like about looking at people at certain phases in their life, especially when they're young, is this, kind of unbridled confidence they have that they've arrived with all the answers. Mm. And guess what? When you're 21 or 16 or whatever it is, like you haven't got them yet. But yeah. that's just <laughs> life, you know? And that's why it's always interesting to look back at old photos in particular. And that's, you know, what were we thinking? But there's there's a kind of uh, a purity of intent in that moment that mm-hmm. is is great. It's a, if you took a photo outside the first concert you went to and just the the love you have towards some band you wouldn't dream of listening to now, I think is very human. Mm, that's wonderful. Now, this we're, we're migrating to style, aren't we? Yeah. So let's... Actually, no, we're not yet. Okay. I've got one more for you, um, which we've touched on, but I wanted to kind of ask, obviously, and I think your, your, your relatively new website, The Contender, yes. which is a tremendous read, oh, thank you. distills your passions mm. as a writer into one kind of um, one digestible right. space. Mm. Um, and you have travel... Food and drink, fishing, yeah. and menswear. How did you... What was your own process of falling in love with all these different things? What compels you to write about a subject? Well, that's that's a, an interesting thing. I think I got to a point tor- towards the end of my writing about art where I said, well, if I'm going to be doing this writing, I'd like to write about things I care about. Sure. Uh, partly for selfish reasons, but partly because I think that's the way I write best and the way a lot of people write best. If you're, if you're going to, if you care about something, it's just going to animate you that much more, uh, whether it's Nick Hornby writing about Arsenal or, or whatever it is. Mm. And I think that that's a good, so that, then it's just my own passion. So I, I love to travel. I love to fish. I love men's clothing. I think what the challenge is, how do you develop a voice about that? Each of those topics, it's either in some cases, they have to be useful to readers, and in other cases, they have to be provocative. Or you, you can't just say, oh, I like this, I'm going to write about it. It's going to, you're, that's the answer. You need to provide some, uh, a, a point of view on those, on those topics. Of course, when you're writing for a travel magazine, you've got to 
it's different than if I'm writing on my own. I think if you get to a certain point, if you're lucky enough, people come to you because you you wrote the piece and they want your point of view. You're not they're not just looking for five hotels in Paris, yeah. you know, with li- listed according to price and neighborhood. They're looking for my version of what to do in Paris. And so one of the ideas with the contender was, you know, it's a, it's hard to work in magazines as we know. The magazines there are fewer of them and they're thinner and and often they're they're not very satisfying in a lot of ways. No. And so I think there's still so many things I care about and want to write about. I just needed a landing space to do that. So the idea for the contender is that I could write uh, there's still a lot of there's a reason the internet can be good. You can respond to things very quickly. You can post photos from the day before, whether you're at Pitti or on a fly fishing trip. And in some in some sense, it's just a place I can lead people to the other things I'm doing. And in another, it's it's nice to have that outlet. And I think it will develop over time. And and I, and hopefully there'll be more travel services because I do think that um, there's a lot of people curious about traveling and there's just not a place for them to find like we're in Florence right now yeah I feel like there's a lot and that's one of the places I write about often um, I think there's a lot that a website and then a, on your iPhone that it can it can be useful to people and hopefully enjoyable mm. and and I guess actually ultimately easier to consume right I and mean, it's just the way we live now exactly you dip into your phone in the way that you might have dipped into right. a magazine even five right. years ago I, it is it is amazing the change of habits that we have and i sometimes just have to turn my internet off to look back into the world i mean you, you, one thinks one is uh, immune to that but it's we're not i'm not and i don't um just read newspapers as much as I used to. Just the the habits we have of of being informed are just so different. You're mm. right. In, in five years, it's 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 shocking. Yeah, it is crazy. Do do you mind me asking? Simply because I I, I it sounds like our heads may be in a similar space. When you say that the, uh, you look at some magazines and you find you find them unsatisfying, what 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 is it that that niggles you at the moment? Well, I think the I think because magazines are not operating from a position of strength. They're not confident. They're retrenching. And so when, once that happens, then you say, well, we've got to uh, preserve what we have. And our market research tells us this. And that's never a good way to make decisions. I think what people want from a magazine is a strong point of view. Mm. And I think it can be eccentric. It doesn't have to be about what we think we're interested in. Or if I pick up, even if it's roughly on, uh, r- roughly a subject I'm inter- I'm happy to read a travel article about a place I'll never go if it's well written. I think what a travel magazine is more likely to say, well, the most popular places are us, you know, are Florence or uh, Paris. So let's just write about that. Like that's not going to do it for me. There's so many ways to get the basic information. If you're going to Tokyo, you can find a million places to stay. You can the internet, Instagram, we're, we're incredibly informed about the, the logistical details about the world, but what we don't have are sort of strong points of view or eccentric points of view. And I think hopefully there'll be some return to that. I mean, I would love to read about someone's you know, absurd record collection or something I, I'm not even, I didn't even know I cared about. And I think if you know, a place like The New Yorker still can do that, mm. but that's, the number of outlets is, is definitely shrinking, which is too bad. Yeah. I mean, it's not just too bad for the writers, but it's too bad for the culture if you can't read some sort of long-form story. That is um, that kind of charges you up in a way and and makes you take you know there's nothing wrong with 45 minutes or an hour to read a story but they're more likely to make it really short you know and then these terrible ten things to do these yeah. lists and 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 I think that's 
that, I mean, it's possible for something to be too digestible. Yeah, it just becomes lowest sort of denominator right. journalism, doesn't it? I, that, I find that fascinating. I, th- I, I certainly feel in London at the moment that there is a, a, a lack of, of, of media brands that are really, really suitably niche. And mm. I actually think there's power in niche right sure, now sure. with the landscape. We, we, we say this with the podcast, you know, I'm very grateful that we're, we're now three seasons in and it's grown really quickly. But I think it's grown really quickly because we are very happy being niche and sure. staying in this little bit of corner in menswear. And do you know what? Guess what? Guys want to hear about it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, having a point of view and not, not feeling like you have to follow the data or you have to serve everyone and try and be a broad spectrum lifestyle title when that isn't really how guys get their knowledge today, as you've said, um, is, is, is absolutely right. Really interesting. Last week, we released the first of two bonus episodes exploring the process and approach of this season's sponsor, renowned shirting mill Thomas Mason. This week, we're delving deeper to examine the final piece of the Thomas Mason formula, innovation. In fact, I can't think of another heritage brand in our space that is quite so forward-thinking. From the company's relentless focus on sustainability and traceability to its dedicated think tank called Albini Next, Thomas Mason takes the business of innovation very seriously. Not that the brand isn't true to its past, mind you. The Thomas Mason archives are safeguarded by the Albini Group in Italy, and once we'd visited the mill, we were allowed privileged access into the archive itself. Suffice to say that what we saw was quite something. If you'd like to hear more, tune in this coming Saturday. We'll be dropping a bonus episode into your podcast feed. Please do tune in. As always, we very much hope you enjoy. Now, Mm. clothes. Yes. I where should, how should we do this? I wanted to, there are a few things to unpick, and actually I, I sort of I, I wanted to present you with an opportunity to put the world to rights. Okay. While we're here, <laughs> um, obviously we're here at Pity. I wondered if you have any thoughts on on where menswear's at right now. Things you're enjoying, things you're enjoying a little less, things mm. you're seeing in the show that you like, yeah. or things you don't like. Well, I mean, pity, I think with pity, it's really easy to get distracted. That's the first thing. So when we're here and, and it's public perception is often dictated by a very small group of prancing boys around the <laughs> periphery of it. And, and I think the more you come, the easier it is to filter that out. So mm-hmm. I, it, it's not, and I think people roll their eyes at that and it's worth rolling eyes at that. And um, I mean, what I say about pity is you take the, the most vain men in the world and you put them around men that are even more vain. <laughs> and, and that's a little bit dangerous for those of us who, because it gives us the illusion that we don't have too many clothes when we most certainly do. Mm. I, think, I think it's an interesting time. I think there is, um, I, I do think there's a, a certain lack of confidence. I mean, it's interesting talking about the, the media and the power of niche, which we were just saying. Mm. I think that that translates to, to menswear as well. I think smaller companies with a, good point of view, uh, are empowered right now. They, they can get their message out in a lot of ways through Instagram and, and all the other channels uh, to sound like a marketer. And, um, but I think that that gives them a lot of, I don't want to say power, it's of course incredibly difficult, but I think that it's a time where people are very curious about 
small companies. And you say, well, why is that? Well, I think it's because they're not being served by large companies. And, and I think that that's, and it's also, I mean, it really is similar to media in the sense that the bigger companies are operating from a, with a lack of confidence, from my point of view, and a lack of a strong viewpoint. And we know that when we see it, if you go into uh, the booths of a, a, a company run by two people who are right there, and you see what they're doing, and they believe in it, and they've got a good story to tell about why they're making what they're doing, you know, that's a that's a good thing. And I mean, that's why we come here. I mean, I mean, I actually come here also for Italian tailoring. I, I mean, I what I want from Pitti, I'm not honestly trying to discover too many things. A couple discoveries is enough for me. Mm. I, I do like to see classic Italian tailoring that I can't see anywhere else. And I just like to be close to it. I like to see the people in the booths. I like to see, honestly, how they dress. I often find myself picking up a jacket that's on a hook, and it turns out, I'm like, this is great. When is this coming out? They say, oh, no, it's the jacket of the man who's... Yes. Enrico's coat or whatever it is. <laughs> and, and so I, I'm, I am here for the classic Italian tailoring in many ways, and, and the people who care about that. And I think that that... I like that that still exists. It's like going to the opera and seeing people who are passionate about it. And, and that's probably because it's, I don't want to say it's dying, but it's a, it's a rarefied situation. And mm. I, like, I like the people who care about it a lot. Um, so I, I look forward to Pitti. I, it's really something I, I enjoy. And I particularly like the winter time because um, I like overcoats. And, yeah. I li- and I think like a lot of men who love clothes love overcoats. And I like seeing, and I like heavy fabrics and tweed and, and autumnal colors and all the rest of it. So it's, it's kind of my, um, it's, it's sort of right in my zone of my pleasure zone. Um, so I think that's, it's, it's a good place to come. And I think it's a good, and it can, you can find meaning in it if mm. you try harder. But you've got but to look for you it. Got to eat, right. And if you, and you're not going to get it prancing around outside. But, um, you know, a little of that theatricality is it's not the worst thing you know it's like it's like a football player scores a goal and takes his shirt off and waves it around you know like well at least you got the goal but you got to you know watch the rest of it too yeah you, exactly <laughs> yeah, you've got to deal with the the, the, the insufferable <laughs> bit is it fair to say that as a writer you are just drawn towards those crafts or objects or pastimes where you can you can sense the care of the people doing something yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I always from from the first time I, I I'm not a fashion person. I can't quite grasp it. I'm skeptical about it, and mm. I don't really like things that are kind of almost designed to become obsolete. Uh, that I don't enjoy that. I like something that's enduring, and I like the process of someone who's devoted themselves to make something that's going to last. Um, and that doesn't have to be a suit. It can be. Uh, a raincoat or a bag or shoes or anything or a car I, I mean to me d- a coffee maker it's mm-hmm. the idea like I love design and and a thought that like good design to me understands some sort of human need and addresses it and does it in a in an understated way but in a way that's satisfying somehow that's one reason I love going to Japan where you just everything is highly considered but in a way that respects you it's not over designed mm-hmm. and so I, I like I'm drawn to people who've who've devo- devoted themselves to making something good, and knowing that almost inevitably is the takes a, is a longer path, and I mean yes it's better to write about those people as well, but not for everybody. I mean people want to know trends for sure, and that's part of there will always be people who are want to know about the next thing. 
but I kind of want to know about the last thing. Yeah, <laughs> the yeah, thing yeah, that was yeah, like yeah. three things ago. Like that to <laughs> me is just better because, um, you know, I like to go to a, a new restaurant like after it's been open for a year, like once it's sort of settled yeah, in, you, you know. You know you're going to get, right. yeah, get and, it at its best. And, uh, and I'm not going to be there like when it's all the buzz during the preview week. And I, that kind of animates all my thinking. And I do think... Um, I mean, it's always funny when you're here, you, you can see, oh, there's a lot of people trying to get into swimwear or they're, oh, really, the Italian uh, Amalfi Coast is a, that's the, you know, all on everybody's mood board. But, you know, and that, you know, those things are going to come and go. I'm, I'm looking for something that might last a little bit longer. And people who have faith that what they're doing is worth enduring. Mm. Mm. Wonderful. I, yeah, I just find it's one of the things that I, 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 as we've got to know each other a little bit and I've followed your work, it, I, I really admire the way that you champion things that have been done the right way or things that are built to last or things that just have an inherent kind of sense of, of, of integrity to them. Mm. Because I don't think, I mean, this, this is kind of my, my one-man campaign, I don't think that, that the media does anywhere near enough today to support small brands, mm. small makers guys that really genuinely care about what they mm. do but that probably can't afford to right. to spend uh, you know 30 grand on six pages of advertising this season it's, or whatever yeah it takes a change of attitude and it takes a, taking a, requires taking a longer view and i think one of the problems with magazines in the men's space is that almost by definition they need to keep telling you what's new or at least that's how they interpret their mission partly because they want to sell ads and they want to I always get very revved up when it's like eight new things for spring, 28 ways to update your wardrobe this summer. And like, slow down, everyone. Let's just think about maybe what you had last summer is still all right. Maybe there's some enduring rules that are guidelines that are going to help you dress well over time. And I think magazines used to do that. And they provided some type of large scale guidance and that's not really where we are now and I think the thing people that suffer from that are these brands often making things that are more expensive that you have to invest in I know I'm sorry investment piece I think that phrase is like we hear it a lot it's lot so we lose yeah. its sense of what it actually means but it means like yes yeah, like forking over a lot to something that you care about to have for a while and not just a parka like you know, there's something great to me when someone like saves up money to get something they've dreamt about and having that experience and getting your first tailored sport coat. I mean, I think that's a, a great thing to do. Mm. And yes, it's a little bit indulgent. That's partly what makes it wonderful. But also the fact that it it it's it's required you to think about something for a year or longer. And, and that's worth doing. Well, one of my absolute favorite anecdotes that I've heard on Savile Row is from uh, Joe Morgan of Chittleborough and Morgan. And uh, he obviously does absolutely remarkable work, and uh, it's it, it's a huge investment to go and, and order a Gentleman Morgan three piece suit. But he said, you know, he dresses a lot of very wealthy guys. But he he told me um, last year, I think, that one of his favourite clients of that year was was actually a London cabbie, a taxi oh, yeah. driver who quit smoking. And every week put his once uh, cigarette money oh into a God. jar until he could go and get that Chittleborough and Morgan three-piece suit. And it's it took great. him 18 months, but he wanted to do it. So it's also a health benefit. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. It's the moral of the story. Right. <laughs> exactly. I like it. Um, well, yeah, my health benefit from it is that when I, when I put on a, 
enough uh, when my inseam grows a little bit then i've got to lose enough weight to fit back into my indeed. tailored clothes you know? indeed i'm 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 there right now uh, <laughs> i have to adapt my pity wardrobe this season <laughs> post christmas sure. um now i we've we, we've just hinted a little bit about your your skepticism of some areas of the fashion industry mm. I, I was hoping you would you would help me communicate something that's driving me mad at mm. the moment, which is that wearing clothes does not make you a gentleman. <laughs> and I don't like being marketed to as a gent or a snappy dresser or a dapper chap. All yeah. these really trite phrases. Right. As soon, yeah, as soon as something becomes a uh, like a, a, a catchword, then like, that's when the, your radar should go up and you should get a little concerned. Mm. And I do think... like. I guess like, there's no shortcut for anything. Like once you accept that, that that I think that's empowering to know that you can take your time to get where you need to be, but you're not going to become a gentleman by buying one thing, or you're not going to. Nothing is going to happen. First of all, through one purchase. I, I mean, I think w once you get over that, you'll probably be a lot happier in your life. <laughs> of course, like there's <laughs> many many people that are trying to convince you otherwise, and the economy sort of convinces you of that. But I think one reason I like to come to Florence is to see just the wonderful kind of everyday places you can go to have not just your coffee, but a simple sandwich or a simple trattoria. And these places are very dignified in their way. They're not Indeed. expensive. You can have the house red, but it's going to be good. They try to do the best thing they can at the price that they're doing it. And they kind of wouldn't do it any other way. And that's like that's a good model for the other things. And, and that can be, as far as being a gentleman, I think it's just, it's just sort of a, I don't know what it is, like Downton Abbey was sort of an insidious influence on people. Yeah. And I think like, people often learn the long, wrong lessons from even something like Brideshead Revisited or The Great Gatsby, two wildly misunderstood um, books, partly because of what, what became of them on the big screen. Yeah. And these idea of gentlemen, excuse me, <clears throat> are just uh, gentlemanliness, you know, it's it's something worth. I don't even know aspiring to. You probably can't try to be a gentleman. That's a good question. Yeah, uh, I think it's something that happens, and it's also probably a hundred years behind the time to it, try to do it, that. Quite, it drives me mad. I, I'm so I'm so grateful to to hear the the, the author of Men and Manners say that. This is, <laughs> oh, there's weight behind it. Right. This wisdom, but I get again something that a, a, a few of the brands that I consult for in London have had real hang-ups with using that word mm. and talking to their customers as, as gentlemen. And I, the first thing I say to any brand is that the gentlemen do not go around saying, oh, I'm such a gentleman. Right, right. I feel really gentlemanly right. today. <laughs> right, right. It's, whoop, right. excuse me, that's my glasses, listeners. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I'm getting really het up. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a mode of behavior. It's a set of values. You can't put on a Harris Tweed sports coat, and then have a, become this right. this gentlemanly right. figure. Right. I think, in a way, it's it's probably the opposite of those. Th it's the opposite of what you wear. It's a sort of dignity you bring to everyday interactions. Mm -hmm. I think something I, I think about more is that so much of our life is kind of put onto Instagram or performative in some way. What about the thing that nobody can see? What about the thing that you're talking about, a taxi driver, the way you interact with someone you're never going to see again? I mean, th that to me is where we need to look a little more closely. I mean, one of the, moving on to my other book, Men and Manners, which you just mentioned, one of the things that inspired that was this sort of lack of kind of civility in the public realm, just among people you see at any time you travel, <laughs> particularly in an airport, mm. and just how we 
you know, devices are allowing us to feel um, insulated from the people around us. You know, we, we've got our headphones in, we've got our staring at our maps, we're listening to this, and that we, we can kind of feign indifference or just have downright indifference to the people around us. And, um, and that's, I, I would start there before thinking that buying a double-breasted suit is going to make you a, a gentleman. Yeah, a snappy, snappy, right. snappy, <laughs> snappy, dapper well, and, gent. And, and, it, and it just, like, just what, buy something that you like or try to, try to acquire things that, that make sense for you. And over time, it will, I don't think you're going to fool anybody. I mean, no. that, that ultimately, we, everyone just has that radar for somebody who's kind of trying the correct amount. And... Uh, and if you're worried about it, you're probably trying too hard. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's. But that's um, again, that's something I have struggled with as I've sort of over the last couple of years, and I'm, I sort of feel like I'm slowly getting closer to it. But that I, I guess one of the hardest things about any passion, in this case, clothing, is as you say, trying just enough. I don't know how the hell you do that. <laughs> it's 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 a it's a it's the journey, you know. And you'll look back and and you will realize when it. I mean, it's so similar to writing or anything else when you have your, you've finally arrived at, with, at your sensibility and you'll just know it makes sense for you. I think the problem with marketing is that you try to arrive, someone's trying to convince you to arrive at their point of view. And what, to me, the brilliance of Ralph Lauren isn't all of the imagery, it's that he made clothes that men could wear that were useful to them. Not a bunch of people standing around in an Adirondack canoe in a freaking tuxedo, for crying out loud, in the middle of the woods, (laughs) as charming as that may be. It's that he made clothes that were useful to men and that men could combine however they wanted in many different ways. That's good in my mind. And I think that we're always going to look back on ourselves and it takes time. And, and it's funny, I sort of, you can chart some people by how they unbutton their uh, buttons on their cuffs of their sport coat or uh, suit. You know, first they try two on one side, then they do one on each side. Oh, then that's they, so and, true. But then you finally get to the point and then you're like, I don't need to unbutton any, or I just do, who, I, but you can sort of chart your, like how provocative you're going to try to be. And I kind of can judge a man's age by how, at pity by how, how many his cuff buttons, buttons are. are. <laughs> and, and that's just a, a shorthand for something that, you know, you're going to wear your trousers too short or you're going to, you know, wear only white shoes or whatever it is. And you've, you know, it's, it's good to make mistakes I don't I don't I think people should experiment the same way you're you're going to try different you're going to listen to different types of music and you're going to have all of that you're going to get go crazy on and only watch one you know only watch Terry Gilliam films or whatever it is and then you kind of grow out of that or Stanley Kubrick or something like certain things are going to speak to you at different times in your life and then you'll you'll kind of outgrow those I mean it's it's human to have phases I think we all go through that and you know you only listen to the Smiths and you can't imagine listening to anything else and then you get to a point you're like I can't listen to Morrissey one more time or you've got <laughs> only you know six times a year instead of like six hours a day yeah and the same with clothes which is why it's so funny to look at old photos and you're like oh my god I was obsessed with that I would only wear that and now it's I, sometimes we misremember these things I I remember coat that I was in love with that I had that I wore when I was in college I thought it was the most sophisticated it's kind of a boiled wool I went to college in Maine blue sport coat indoor outdoor coat and I was like this thing is great I thought I lost it and in my mind it was truly elegant and I finally found it in the back of a closet and put it on and it was about one foot too wide on both shoulders I was wearing <laughs> it looked like it belonged to a basketball player and I was like wait this was the most sophisticated thing that the, in the history of Maine dressing <laughs> and that's you know that's life you know that everything is not quite as elegant as you remember indeed indeed well um 
Mr. Coggins, I've, I've so enjoyed this conversation. Oh. I could chat to you for yeah. another hour, <laughs> but I fear we must let you continue with Absolutely. your day. I think you've got to get to the, got to get to the show. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Go and find some of the more, the stuff worth writing about. Exactly. Um, for all our sakes. Of course. Well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. It was great to be here. Appreciate it. Well, there you are, team. A conversation with David Coggins. I really could have spent all day chatting to him cocktail in hand, but that's your lot, I'm afraid. As this season starts to wrap up, please let me remind you to sign up to our competition with Thomas Mason while you still can. It's a great prize to be won and proceeding as normal. Head to handcutradio.com forward slash Thomas Mason and plug in your email address. Please also do check out our two dedicated bonus episodes with Thomas Mason out now, for a great insight into one of menswear's most historic and yet most forward-thinking fabric mills. Thank you as always to my brilliant producers at creative agency Birch London and to Mr Joe Boyd for composing our theme music and mastering the episode. You're all absolute legends. We're looking forward to sharing episode 10 with you this time next week and to going out on a high. So we'll see you then. <laughs>